Well, I want to say again how much I appreciate your hospitality and uh, this opportunity to be with you these days and to share with you. Uh, yesterday at uh, lunch with program staff, today with at lunch with educational uh, leaders in the church, to have the opportunity to share back and forth and to uh, ask questions of one another and to have good conversation. And really grateful for that. Grateful for the time I've been able to spend uh, uh, with you, David, uh, during this time. And uh, good to, as I said uh, last night, good to see y'all. Uh, Gail and Muzon also and have a chance to meet new friends. I've gotten to know some of you a little bit and I sure appreciate um, uh, your kind words and your hospitality and making me feel so much at home. Uh, in, in fact, even having some of the Fort Worth weather up here that we've had lately uh, as well. Uh, but it's good to, it's really good to be together in this warm place of worship this evening. Well, we conclude tonight our walk through the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we've been with Apostle Paul, of course, and when I think of Paul, I think of the image of broken chains uh, because Paul was on his way at one point to arrest Christians in Damascus, to drag them back in chains, but something happened along the way. He met the risen Christ, and in that experience, Paul realized he had been chained uh, and his chains were broken and his chains of hatred and his chains of prejudice and his chains of a narrow soul-killing, spirit-killing legalism, uh, those chains were broken as well. And so when he wrote, writes to the Galatian church, he's very concerned about them. Uh, the, this letter to the Galatians has a certain tone to it that's a little bit different from the others because you realize the pain with which Paul is writing. He's writing to them because he's very concerned. He's concerned that they're abandoning the gospel that he has brought to them. In the very first verse of the chapter that we've been in, the fifth chapter of Galatians, Paul says, um, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He was just concerned that they were falling back into this kind of legalism, this kind of spirit-killing fundamentalism, if you will, that was so narrow that, that it would really kill the spirit instead of allow them to live in the spirit and walk by the spirit. So he begins to describe this life of freedom. And he says that it is living by the Spirit. And if we live by the Spirit, Paul says, then let's follow the Spirit. And then he describes that, of course, with this list of descriptors of what the fruit of the Spirit is like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what it looks like, Paul is saying. Now, we have been using that image of scanning and an image of situational awareness from aviation that we're paying attention to what's going on around us. And that's really important to know for a pilot. It's a, it's a habit that a pilot must develop. Uh, it, it has to be second nature to constantly be looking in the cockpit 
to see what's going on with the airplane and to make sure you're going uh, on the right course and then to look outside to see what's going on in the airspace around you. And I think it's a great analogy uh, for our lives that we need to be paying attention to what's going on. And it needs to be ingrained in us. It needs to be a habit uh, that just, just comes naturally for us. And not just in the season of Lent, but I believe uh, throughout our lives. What we're really talking about, I think, is paying attention Really paying attention. And that is not that easy to do, is it? We have so many distractions now, so many things that will take us out of being present where we are to someplace else. A friend of mine was sharing uh, with a group of clergy. In fact, you may have been there, uh, David, in, in that group when one of our colleagues was sharing an experience of uh, that his youth director had. The youth director met with a group of of the youth in the church, the students in the church, and ask them, what do you want your parents to know? What do you want your parents to know that you haven't been able to say to them? And they had this discussion, and the kids said what they wanted parents to know. And then he met with the parents, and he said, do you, you want to know what your kids are thinking and what they want you to know? And not individually, you know, but just as a group. What do they want parents to know? And he said the one that struck him the most was the kids said, we want our parents to be at our events, to be at our recitals, to be at our performances, uh, to be at our sporting events. But they said, listen to this. They said, but if they're there and we look out and they're on their cell phone, then they're not there what they wanted their parents to hear. They're not there. So we're talking about paying attention and being present. A couple of weeks ago, I heard a, I just caught a little bit of an interview on the NPR. It was with a mu musician. I don't know who it was. I didn't catch that part. But the musician said, I look out at an audience and he said, some of the people are, have their heads down, they're on the cell phone, they're looking something up or they're texting. And he said, one time during a performance it occurred to me with the blue light coming up on their faces. He said, it occurred to me, they look like ghosts. And then he said, my next thought was, they are ghosts. They're not really there. They're not there. So I think what we're talking about is paying attention and being present wherever we are. More and more, when I give the vow of membership, prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness to someone who's joining the church, more and more I'm thinking about that presence part. I think today, more than any other time, it, it means so much more than showing up in a worship service or showing up for a Sunday school class or a Bible study or something. I think presence more and more has to mean really being present. Present in our lives. Present wherever we are. Paying attention to what's going on inside and outside of us. And I think that's our, that's, we're called to that, I believe, as God's people. And walking in the Spirit is being intentionally present. So, Paul describes what that looks like, and we end tonight with the last two of those, 
uh, gentleness and self-control. Gentleness and self-control. Now the first of those, gentleness, is uh, sometimes translated meekness. And you may have memorized uh, the fruit of the Spirit at some point in the past, and this one was meekness. Uh, the word is prautes uh, in Greek, and it, it is often translated meekness, or prautes is translated meek, that form of the word. And that's not a good translation for us today, I don't think. I mean, do, do you want to be meek? Is anybody here, is that your goal, to be meek? Uh, it just doesn't have a great, it's, it's like milk toast, isn't it? It's like that eponym, milk toast. It comes from Casper Milk Toast, a cartoon character, you know, in the 1920s. And, and the creator of the character said, uh, Casper Milk Toast, a man who, who walks softly and gets hit with a big stick. <laughs> and nobody wants to be Casper Milk Toast, do they? You know, some, some wag said, I'm going to come out with a book called Cower Power. And he said, I'm going to start a club, and it's going, to be, it's going to be the dependent order of really meek and timid souls. The acronym is Doormats, by the way. <laughs> Anybody want to join that club? And so when we translate the word meek or meekness in this instance, it just doesn't, it just doesn't come across very well for us today. So most translations now will translate it gentleness. Gentleness. And it has a particular meaning, gentleness does. It's a word that's used of the primary figure in the Hebrew Scriptures, Moses. It says in the older translations, the man Moses was very meek. It's also used of Jesus in the New Testament. That it, Jesus self-describes, his self-description is, meek and, and lowly of heart. Or now we would say in the translations, gentle. But no one would ever say Moses and Jesus were milk toast or, or timid souls or weak in any way. So this word really means something other than that and, it, and, it, and, it's, and, it, and gentleness is such a good translation because real gentleness comes out of strength. It comes out of a kind of confidence and strength that allows gentleness to take center stage. And when you look at Moses, when you look at Jesus, you realize that this fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, is, has several characteristics. One, it's receptivity. Moses was receptive to God. He, now, he was reluctant at first. You know the burning bush story when God speaks to him and calls him to go and set the people free. Of course he was reluctant and he tried to make excuses. You know, these, I'm, not, I'm not your guy. You know, he didn't feel like he had what it took to do that. But he was receptive and ultimately he said yes and he remained receptive as he led the people. Jesus, of course, was receptive to God. Jesus would go off and, uh, by himself and pray and, and listen uh, to receive. So when we talk about gentleness as the fruit of the Spirit, it is our receptivity to God, to receive God into the center of our living, to be so open to God that we 
are receptive to God's call on our lives, that we are receptive to placing God in a prominent position, to placing God in the center of our our living and orienting our lives in that way. Receptivity. It's also teachability. In fact, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the word that's translated meek or gentleness, that Hebrew word has the sense of moldability, being molded. Uh, it has that connotation. And so being molded, being taught, being shaped uh, is part of what it means to, to, to have this fruit called, called gentleness, to be teachable. And if you think about it, Teachability is one of the most important characteristics in leadership today. We have to be learners. It's one of the most important characteristics of being a follower of Christ. After all, the word disciple means student. And, and so the question for you and for me as we scan our lives, am I receptive to God and am I teachable? Am I a lifelong learner? Do I yearn to know more of the things of God? Do I yearn to have more insights and And am I open to that learning? Or am I frozen somehow and and closed? Gentleness is this moldability, this teachability uh, uh, that's part of it. And then gentleness is also being a servant. Moses was a servant. He not only led the people, but he served And so he's called gentle, meek, sometimes translated humble as well. Jesus was a servant. Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be servant of all. Jesus, at the supper with his disciples, took off his robe and girded himself with a towel like a servant, and he took a basin of water and he washed the disciples' feet. And they were shocked that he would take on that role. But he said, if you're going to be my disciples, then you must do this. You must be a servant. You must serve one another. You must do as I have done to you. To be gentle is to be a servant. So the question for you and for me is, are are we in our lives evidencing that kind of gentleness, that receptivity to God, that teachability and that willingness to be a servant. And then Paul ends his list with self-control. And in some ways, I think it's a, it, it is a fitting place to end our conversation as well. We had a, a discussion Sunday morning in uh, one of the, uh, a couple of young adult classes met with me, and somebody said, So do you think there's a certain order to the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul describes? Is there some order to that? I'd never thought about that. I don't know. I guess it it does make sense. Love would be first. I mean, that's pretty high on Paul's list. It makes sense Paul would name that one first, but otherwise I I really don't know. And, uh, And someone else said, well, well, maybe it's more, it's, it's better to think of it as a circle. Uh, you can sort of jump in anywhere uh, with that, and and you can you can latch on someplace. There's there's some place you can you can enter that circle. You can hang on to it. Maybe it's like a circle. And then someone said, you know, our children now they've been talking about the fruit of the spirit, and they're making these wreaths that are circles. And 
And uh, I don't know. It's an interesting way to think about that. But I think ending with with self-control really is a good place to end, I think. Um, Because in a way, self-control touches on all of the list, everything else, all the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Because it's about awareness, but it's also about controlling oneself. Enkriteia is the uh, Greek word. And, and it, uh, it simply means everywhere that it appears self-control. It's a pretty straightforward word. Not a real common word, only six times in the New Testament, but it's a straightforward word. And it's always used in the sense of controlling oneself. The, the root of that word has to do with strength or power. And so it's power over oneself. It's the power to control one's self. When we think about that word control, it, it really takes on different connotations for us depending on the situation we're in. And it may not be the most popular word in the world at times. I mean, sometimes it, it sounds kind of harsh or, or maybe not even genuine. I mean, if you say, he is a controlling person, that, that's not very good. Or she's very controlled. That doesn't sound all that great either. Or don't worry, folks, everything is under control. That doesn't always instill a lot of confidence uh, either. Control. But think about the opposite of self-control, and that's being out of control. And if you've known someone who was out of control, you know how terribly destructive that is. And if you've been in the position where you've had to say, look, I, I am out of control then you know how painful that is. So self-control is, is, is a wonderful thing. It is akin to discipline. In fact, self-control really is synonymous with that. It is the ability to control oneself, to discipline oneself, and it makes all the difference in the world. It's what enables us uh, to, to, to do what we do. It's what enables us to be leaders. If you're going to be a leader, You have to be self-controlled. If you're going to be an athlete, you have to be self-controlled if you're going to be a good athlete. Paul, I'm going to read a passage from the Apostle Paul when he talks about self-control in another context. It's one of those other five places where the word is used. It's in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Paul must have been an athlete. He uses a lot of uh, athletic imagery uh, in fact, um, in Philippians, uh, Paul talks about running a race. It's one of those beautiful places where you know that Paul really has been set free. If anybody could be chained uh, to his past, it would be Paul as a persecutor of, of the people of God. And, and yet Paul uh, has this sense of freedom. And, and so he's, he's able to say, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to lot, what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an image of running a race, being able to forget what's behind and press on. Well, here he uses another, uh, some other athletic imagery as well. Uh, he says, Do you not know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes, he says, exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. 
So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. There's discipline. That's what he's talking about. Self-control. He uses that word when he describes the athlete. It's true of musicians as well. And can you imagine a musician that is not self-controlled? It's discipline. It's, it's the discipline to practice for hours and hours and hours. I mean, I'm sure that Joel and Susan have heard people say thousands of times, I wish I could play like you or I wish I could sing like you. Well, you could with 50,000 hours of rehearsal. <laughs> it's, it's self-control. It's discipline. Um, or, or a dancer. To be a dancer is to, is to be self-controlled, to, to be able to be so disciplined you can control the body and it becomes second nature uh, as, as that discipline is practiced over and over again. And it's true of any discipline. In fact, that's why we call them disciplines uh, because we need that discipline, that self-control in order to excel in whatever it is we do. It's true in our spiritual lives as well. It is about forming holy habits. It's about the discipline to control ourselves to the extent that over and over again we practice being who God calls us to be. We're paying attention. We're in the present moment. And we're aware of what's going on with us. And over and over again it becomes more and more Second nature. Because habits are powerful. I will never think of the power of habits without remembering a story that a, a pastor I, I know uh, tells about an unfortunate time when he learned the power of habits. He went to visit a member of his congregation whose husband had, had passed away. And it was in a small home. There were a lot of family members there. And so they... Um, they had to, he, he wanted to find a, a private place to meet with the widow and to, and to be able to talk with her and to make a few arrangements and to have prayer with her. There was really no place to go. All the rooms were filled except for the bathroom. And she said, why don't we step in the bathroom and, uh, and we can just visit in there for a minute. So they went in the bathroom. They closed the door. She sat on the edge of the tub. He sat on the uh, lid of the, of the toilet. And they talked for a while and he had prayer. And then this is where he learned about the power and the force of habits. When he finished praying, he stood up, reached over, and flushed the toilet. <laughs> and when he told the story, he said, have you ever tried to unflush a toilet? <laughs> I mean, think of walking out of that bathroom. <laughs> the power of habits. But habits are good, too. John Wesley called them holy habits. That they become so second nature to us that we don't really have to think much about them. And that comes from discipline. It comes from self-control. And self-control is such a difficult thing to do because for one thing it means saying no to ourselves. And it's hard enough to say no to someone else but the hardest person in the world to say no to is ourselves. Um, it's just... It's tough to do. M. Scott Peck talks about that in his book, The Road Less Traveled, when he's talking about 
about discipline, about, about saying no to oneself. And, and he goes back to his childhood and he tells about getting a new bicycle when he's 10 years old and, and he's sailing down a hill and it's just it's glorious and he's having the time of his life. It's wonderful. He feels so free and he's just sailing down the hill and, and, and he decides, I, I don't want to stop doing this. And, and so he doesn't want to say no to himself and so he doesn't apply the brakes and he's gaining speed and gaining speed and gaining speed. And then it gets to the point where he can't say no. He's past that point. And then the bicycle hits a tree and he goes flying off and he's bruised and scraped up and the front wheel of his bicycle is, is beyond repair. And he uses that as an image for what it means if we don't have self-control. And if we can't say no to ourselves, and it does lead, doesn't it, to disaster. It's hard to say no to ourselves too because sometimes it's hard to sort out what's important as distinct from what's urgent. And so we end up doing a lot of things that aren't really important but seem to be because they're urgent or they seem to be urgent. And so it's hard for us